Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. I had a couple people nervous when they opened up their bulletin and saw the scripture text said, the book of Ruth. But I promise you, I won't make you stand for the book of Ruth. Instead, we're going to look at the book of Ruth today, kind of from a wide angle, jumping around a little bit and looking at how the book of Ruth moves from kind of hope lost to hope regained, hope renewed and reborn. Uh, Here at the beginning of this new year to think about what is hope? What does hope look like? And I think we see that very well through the book of Ruth. So would you please join with me and stand out of respect for the authority of God as he has declared himself through the word of God. And we're going to read uh, just the opening of Ruth here, the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, God of heaven and earth, you who made all things, make us new once again today in Christ through your word. By the power of your spirit, give us eyes to see now and ears to hear what the spirit of Christ says to his church. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The passage that we just read opens up the book of Ruth with with thunder, doesn't it, and devastation. I mean, seriously, what what goes well for Naomi? (laughs) Nothing. Absolutely nothing here. It opens with first famine in the land. In the surplus of America, we are quite distant from famine, aren't we? But not so in the ancient world, nor in many parts of the world today. With famine comes starvation and plague, and typically war comes with famine as well. Famine means the loss of property as families scramble to sell everything they have for food. In addition, a common response in the midst of famine was also to to actually sell your children into slavery just to keep them alive and to keep you alive. So kids, imagine 
uh, sitting around the dinner table. Dad looks over at you, Domans, and says, which one of you are going tonight? And you all vote. And Rachel has to go. Sorry, Rachel. Famine is a horrifying thing here in these opening pages of Ruth. And you need to feel the weight of what they're, what they're experiencing. Every day is a, is a fight to stay alive and find food. Now, as you open up Ruth, for, for biblical readers, you should have kind of your ears burning when you hear about famine. For in the Bible, there's only one response to famine for the Israelites. Do you know what that is? Say repentance. (laughs) Repentance. In Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, whenever God sends famine to his people, you're called to repent. You're called to examine your sins and and turn from them as he, he is kind of disciplining Israel and calling them to repentance. That's why it's all the more disconcerting when we read that Naomi's family, what do they do? They flee. They flee Bethlehem. This Israelite family flees and goes to where? Moab, a a country of disdain, pagan. It's even more shocking to learn that Naomi's husband is named Elimelech, which means, his name means my God is king. My God is king. Well, here he is, he's trading out the kingship of God and repentance for some quick food in Moab. Then their sons, they take, they take Moabite wives. But it doesn't last long, does it? First, Elimelech dies. Then, Naomi's one son. And then, the other son. So at the beginning of this book, Naomi finds herself empty. She's, she's lost her home. She's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. And now in the eyes of her peers, she has the status of a cursed woman. It doesn't get much worse for someone. Naomi's entire world has, has been ripped to shreds. Is this where I say Happy New Year? Happy Epiphany? This is a bad situation. How do you respond when circumstances turn ugly around you? Either, in their case, because of kind of your own doings, but also by the happenstance of life around you not by your own doings. Do you remember, for those who have read Ruth recently, do you remember how uh, Naomi responds? Look at the rest of chapter 1 here. She then decides to return to Bethlehem, and her two widowed daughter-in-laws begin to come with her. But then look at Naomi's response in verse 8. 
She says to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Now, there's a couple things going on here that we need to see. First, it's highly unlikely that she wants to return to Bethlehem with two Moabite women. That's a little awkward. You know, what, what happened in Moab, Naomi? Here's these Moabite women coming back with her. And second, don't read this as kind of uh, soft-spoken affection to her daughter-in-laws. As we're going to see in chapter 1, this is sarcasm, I want to argue. This is sarcasm. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And kind of, he's not deal kindly with me. Hope it works out for you too. Now, important to the story here is here in the ESV, this language, deal kindly here in verse 8. This is the same word in the Old Testament that is often translated steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord, what? You know, endures forever, psalms like that. Often translated steadfast love of the Lord, or sometimes you'll see it translated as kindness. The way I like to think about it is loyal love. This loyal love that is, that's a surprise. It's, it's this committed, this devoted love from God. So Naomi sarcastically says, may God be loyal in his love to you with the implication he's not loyal to me. And we know this because her sarcasm gets even worse. In verse 9, if you look at verse 9, the very next verse, she continues on. The ESV says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. But this is kind of an awkward phrase in the original and, and it's really choppy. And it might be better rendered something like, may the Lord grant to you, and then it kind of just stops. It actually stops. And then she like restarts and says, go find rest, each of you in, in a new husband's house. It's like she starts off kind of saying this blessing. May the Lord grant to you. Then she just kind of stops and goes, never mind. Go find rest in, your, in a new husband's house, in a new home. Naomi then reveals in verse 12 and 13 that this really is sarcasm. This really is a woman who does not have hope. Verse 12, turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, and catch this, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord. Do you know what that often, most often refers to in the Bible? The Exodus, God rescuing his people. And here Naomi's using the very language of the Exodus and turning it against herself and saying the hand of the Lord is against me. He's treating me like Egypt. He hates me, girls, he says to them. And it's bitter to me. 
This, of course, is made even more clear when she returns to Bethlehem at the end of Ruth 1, and she walks around and, you know, reaches out her hand to greet people and says, hi, my name is Bitter, Mara. My name is Bitter. This is a woman who has become bitter. Naomi has, in chapter 1, called into question the loyal love of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's what she's doing. She's calling this into question. Her, her family kind of turned their back on him in chapter 1, 1 through 5, and now she declares that God, the God of Israel, has turned his back on them now, and hope is lost. But the rest of the story of the book of Ruth now begins to kind of answer Naomi's question. Is hope lost? Has Yahweh indeed, the God of Israel, has the God of Israel actually turned his back on her? The the circumstances sure seem like it, doesn't it? But then some, some curious things begin to happen. You know, when, when Naomi talks to the two girls and tells them, go back, Orpah, the one sister, she, she responds to uh, Naomi's plight as would be expected. When Naomi releases her from any obligations, it, it's like she's running as fast as she can to get back to her Moabite family. She's out of there, gone. And, and that's expected. That's the normal thing. If you are a daughter-in-law and your entire hopes of a family perishes, uh, we have all sorts of of evidence of this, that that they would return to their father's house and they would become part of the father's house again. And this is what Orpah does. It's expected. But Ruth does something entirely unexpected that for the ancient reader makes no sense at all. It's just kind of like, what? Look at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Right after Naomi basically says, hey, go follow your sister. Look how fast she's running to Moab. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, and notice it's the the divine name, Yahweh, all caps, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What? This is not expected. This is not what she should be doing. How could she be doing this? This is the essence of loyal love, steadfast love. The surprise, the shock, the stunning nature of, you're you're, going to be committed to me, Ruth? What? Just as Naomi is declaring that God has no loyal love for her, Ruth Ruth comes along and exhibits this very loyal love and this stunning response. And the Moabite woman declares she will follow the God of Israel and will remain loyal to this embittered, cursed woman. The the outsider is more loyal than the insider. She looks at the circumstances and, and chooses 
to align herself with the God of Naomi, whom Naomi declares has turned his back on her. And Naomi, what does she do? How does she respond? Verse 18, silence. Silence. Silence is never good in an ancient story like this. Never good. She, Naomi can, cannot see what's happening. She, she's so focused on the circumstances swirling around her that she can't see past her nose. And so they go to Bethlehem, right? And the final verse in chapter 1 says they, that they come at the beginning of the barley harvest. This also is not good. The, the beginning of the barley harvest uh, occurs when the society has its lowest stocks of food available. See, you have your harvest, and then you, you save up all that food, and all year long you're eating that food, waiting till the next harvest comes along. And when the harvest begins is actually when food is most scarce in a town. And so at this very moment, in walks Naomi and a Moabite woman with her. Two more mouths to feed in Bethlehem. No wonder the town is all stirred up. No wonder the town is thinking, what? But as I just said, the rest of the story begins answering the question Naomi has asked. Is there hope? Is there hope? Does God have loyal love toward his people even when they turn their backs on him? And so we come to chapter 2. Naomi, here in chapter 2, is sitting at home, presumably kind of pitying her state. But Ruth, the Moabite, again does the unexpected thing. She, she who could have gone home to daddy Moabite and mommy Moabite, uh, instead goes out to the fields to sweat. She didn't have to do that. That was Naomi's responsibility, by the way, not Ruth's. And the town takes notice. They, they marvel. Who, who is this woman? What is she doing? She, she then happens to come to the field of a man named Boaz. And the owner of this field, Boaz, marvels at how Ruth, and he specifically says a foreigner, responds to the situation. Note what he says in chapter 2, in verse, verse 12 here. I'm talking to her. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then know under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz here recognizes that Ruth has placed herself under the care of the God of Israel. Despite her circumstances. Despite Naomi's response. And then Boaz responds even more wildly unexpectedly. In verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Uh, Understand here, this is not normal. This is an excessive amount of food for her to be able to gather. 
Verse 17 goes on to say that she gathered about an ephah, which we don't really know exactly how much that is in this period, except for it's far more than Naomi and Ruth need. Far more. Well, many of you know the rest of the story. In chapter 3, we have this kind of strange encounter between Ruth and Boaz. I think, if I remember right, Jason Stacy, you said this was like PG-13 material when I was teaching in Sunday school. If you want the full story, you can go listen to that Sunday school. <laughs> Suffice it to say, Naomi hatches a, a plot to basically manipulate Boaz into marrying Ruth. And, and Ruth goes along with this, this plot right up until the very last minute. She then once again surprises the reader, and she actually refuses to manipulate Boaz, showing him instead loyal love. Boaz then responds in turn with, with loyal love by declaring he will become her family's redeemer and rescue them from the plight of poverty that they face. And, and keep in mind, Boaz did not have to do this either. There was, he was not required to do this. Then in chapter 4, Boaz takes care of the details and, and secures Ruth as his wife which in turn is, is really about kind of elevating Naomi out of her dire straits. And then this child comes. A child born to Ruth and Boaz becomes a sign to Naomi, an answer to her bitter questions in chapter 1. Is there hope? Is God actually marked by loyal love despite the circumstances I I dwell in? Listen to the answer given at the end of Ruth, beginning in verse 13. This is, I think this is answering Naomi in chapter 1. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, the women who've, who've watched the bitter woman, they say to her, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you You could just see them kind of looking at Naomi like, do you realize what you got? Your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is is stunning. 
Don't let the familiarity you might have with a story rob you of the beauty and the glory in this moment. This, this woman who had her whole life unravel at the beginning of the story, who, who doubted that God is, is showing her steadfast, loyal love, this woman discovers that, that through these circumstances, God has in fact been showing loyal love. He has not abandoned her. In fact, he has not only worked in her life, but but through her circumstances, he has brought about the Davidic line, the very line that the Messiah Jesus himself comes from. Did did she did she always see this and, and feel this loyal love? No. And neither do we. At times it was horribly dark for her and for Ruth, mind you, who lost everything. Horribly dark. But did God's loyal love get turned away from her? The writer says no. No. Even when Naomi's family turned their backs on the God of Israel and fled to Moab, he did not stop being characterized by loyal love. Hope is reborn. I wonder here, I wonder what is, your, what is your hope levels at right now here at the beginning of 2022? Are you like, do you feel like Naomi in chapter one, verse 12 through 13, feeling, feeling no hope? We've just come through what seems like yet again another difficult, heavy year, haven't we? We've lost again, dear saints. We've seen losses in our lives relationally. We've seen stresses kind of just piling up in in different closets of our lives, many of which we don't even want to open up in fear of, of, of what others may see. The book of Ruth shows us something very important about hope that that we need to fix ourselves upon in this new year. And it's this, that, that hope is not a feeling. Hope is is not some kind of passive thing that just kind of happens to you. You, you can't sit around and wait for hope to suddenly just come upon you and then everything is okay. No. Hope instead is a virtue. Hope is a virtue. Hope is a virtue that, that is rooted in and flourishes in nothing else but the character of God. And in the book of Ruth, we see the character of God on display as he shows Naomi step by step that he is indeed filled with and overflowing with loyal love. That's the soil, that's the soil that the virtue of hope grows up in. The way I would define hope, at least here in this context, 
The way I would define hope is that hope is the practice of believing God's loyal love as true for my situation right now and the future. I'll say it one more time. Hope is the practice of believing God's loyal love as true for my situation right now and the future. And note I said, the practice. The practice. Viewed this way, we can see that hope and and really all the virtues are actually a spiritual discipline. Hope is a spiritual discipline. You know, in the new year, we often love to talk about the spiritual disciplines, like reading your Bible, praying, journaling. But what about hope? I want to, I want to this morning urge you to view hope as a spiritual discipline and seek ways to actively practice it. Discipline yourself to look at God's character. Strengthen, strengthen that muscle of hope. Don't, don't, don't pray for God to give you reasons to hope. That is, mere circumstances to hope in. That's what we often do, isn't it? Pray instead for God to strengthen that virtue of hope in you. That, that through the, the situations you face this year, that God would strengthen your muscle of hope, that he would, he would fortify it, that after decades and decades of strengthening this muscle, it would become stronger, your hope would grow stronger by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside you, day after day, strengthening this muscle called hope. Now, the opposite of hope is despair, which is what Naomi experienced. Despair comes when we, when we turn our eyes away from the steadfast, loyal love of God in the midst of our situation. We turn away from it, and we start trying to kind of find reasons to hope, some, some piece of circumstance that, that we can latch onto that will suddenly make it seem that, that everything is going to be okay. And so we obsess over things like the, the news cycle, or, or we exhaust ourselves looking for a, uh, a medical solution to something, or we believe the next scheme that will help us suddenly be financially sound, or, or we search for kind of some hidden advice that will make that relationship all the better. Despair, despair is dark, and it makes us do all sorts of things. Sometimes it's, it's so dark and, and so discouraging. It, it seems impossible to see what God is doing. And, and then we become like Naomi, trapped. Have you been there? Trapped. Just, just trapped in that darkness. But we have to, we have to clear the air, clear the air, and, and look up at the loyal love of God, the soil that hope grows in. And, and we begin this foremost 
by looking to a book like Ruth and pondering God's character. Hope is tied to the loyal love of God throughout the scriptures. Uh, Just this past week on Wednesday in our community group time, I was talking a little bit about this, and my wife, Erin, suddenly looked at me, and she goes, oh, Lamentations. I hadn't even thought about it. This great text in Lamentations about this. Lamentations 3, a text you know well, but see this connection. Verse 17, my soul's bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. Verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And what is it the writer calls to mind? Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord, which is exactly what Ruth is talking about, the loyal love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And it goes on, right? He has hope because of the steadfast love of the Lord. And like in Lamentations 3, the landscape of Scripture is is dotted with hope linked to God's loyal, steadfast love. See, Christian hope, Christian hope does not merely believe that circumstances will get better. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope instead believes that God's faithful, steadfast love will shine more brightly through and because of this trial. That's what Christian hope is. And I know you may not believe that right now, which is why we have to practice it. We have to strengthen that muscle in reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this year, in 2022, let's practice the spiritual discipline of hope. And and here's what I want you to try, just for one week. And, And email me if you've done this, and let me know if it works. Don't tell me if it doesn't work. <laughs> strengthen, strengthen your hope muscle. Your hope muscle. Pick a text like um, Psalm one hundred and thirty. A text like Psalm one hundred and thirty, verse. I think it's verse six or seven. If I get to it. Yes, verse 7, where the writer says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then look what follows. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Each morning, so pick Psalm 130, verse 7. And each morning, uh, I want you to meditate on that verse, namely on the steadfast love of God, His loyal love here. And each morning, write down then, as you're doing that, write down what obstacles you feel like you're facing that day. Okay? Name them. Put them out. Name those things. Then, write down ways that God's steadfast love 
might be at work in that obstacle. Ask God to show you this. And then pray for hope. Not that that your circumstances will change or these obstacles will just go away, but pray that your mindset will change, that you'll begin pondering more the loyal love of God than that obstacle. That's the spiritual discipline of hope. For God's steadfast love, his loyal love, the psalmist often says, endures forever. And and nothing, no circumstance that you face this year, nothing is going to change that love for all those who are in Christ Jesus. That's hope. Amen? Let's pray. Indeed, O oh God, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So my soul rose up and cried out, I hope in the Lord. Would you give us the discipline of hoping in you by the power of your Holy Spirit, so present within us through the work of Jesus Christ, give us hope this year. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.